Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and you're listening to the first episode that focuses on the Gurlitt Art Trove. This story starts off in pre-World War II Europe and speeds forward to recent news. The cast of characters, a father and son. That relationship could be complicated enough without adding in a few world wars and the Nazi regime. The opening scene, World War I. The father, Hildebrand Gurlitt, serves in what has been described as the Great War to end all wars. When the veteran returns home, he wants to immerse himself in art. Having had the advantages that come with a rather bourgeois life in Germany with creative influences within his family, this seems like a natural choice. Hildebrand Gurlitt had an affinity for modern art as early as the 1920s that initially made it difficult for him to remain employed by the German state. Despite its unpopularity with the authorities, however, Gurlitt supported and exhibited controversial artists like the German expressionists known as the Bridge. These, quote, degenerate creatives, as Germany's National Socialist would label them, worked in non-naturalistic colors and tackled taboo themes, promoting what some would consider abhorrent behavior, making their art subversive to the Aryan ideal. Gurlitt eventually transitioned to work as an art dealer, a, quote, missionary for the avant-garde, but under the safety of his wife's Aryan name, thereby detracting from his quarter-Jewish lineage. By the late 1930s, Gurlitt was among the Nazi elite, using his art connections to assist the Führer Adolf Hitler. He worked from Paris as part of the Special Order Linz to gather art for Hitler's ill-fated Führer Museum. Gurlitt was among a handful of dealers licensed to liquidate degenerate art purged from museums and acquired from private collectors. This enabled Gurlitt to feed his appetite for non-Aryan art like Otto Dix, Emil Nolda, and Max Beckmann, despite the cultural shift happening under Hitler's repressive ideology. Gurlitt was even able to reacquire a work that the state previously confiscated from him by the bridge co-founder Ernst Ludwig Kirchner. As the Third Reich fell, Gurlitt was able to retain his stockpile of paintings works on paper and sculpture by asserting a honed Nazi skill, turning the truth on its head. When arrested and questioned by the U.S. Army about his art holdings, Gurlitt falsely claimed all was lost in the 1945 firebombing of Dresden. Hildebrand was eventually released and, likely due in some part to his Jewish descent, was found to have been himself the subject of Nazi crimes. Was this in any way true? Some say so including his son Cornelius. Cornelius Gurlitt wanted only to live a peaceful, quiet life with his father's collection of art. For several decades, he had his wish. When funds were needed, he would give up a piece from the trove, including at least 30 works by the likes of Edgar Degas, Emil Nolde, Otto Dix, Ernst Kirchner, and Max Beckmann, works very possibly taken from Jews. However, the cloistered life Cornelius Gurlitt constructed for himself began to disintegrate. While on a train returning from Switzerland in 2010, the younger Gurlitt, nearly an octogenarian, 
raised suspicion with customs officials at the border of Germany and Switzerland. Gerlitt was carrying large notes totaling just under the monetary limit required for declaration, and said the money was proceeds from a pre-war sale by his father at a Swiss gallery. Based on this encounter, a tax investigation by German authorities followed that involved a search of Gerlitz residences in 2012. It was at Gerlitz's Munich apartment that the first wave of the trove was found and seized. The remainder was later discovered at his property in Salzburg, Austria. The trove of art that Hildebrand Gerlitz alleged had been destroyed at the end of World War II, over 1,500 pieces, were actually in pristine condition. It would be more than a year after this discovery before news of it broke in the German publication Focus. Soon after that story, alleged heirs began to surface. Prior to confiscation of his art, Cornelius had already experienced at least one heir's claim, and it reportedly irritated him. He had taken a work on paper by Beckmann, entitled The Lion Tamer, to an auction house for sale. The work had been obtained by his father in 1934 from Jewish dealer Alfred Flechtheim. Cornelius was forced to share its sale proceeds after the auction house learned of and wanted to quietly handle a claim by the dealer's heirs. In light of Germany's statute of limitations that holds such heirs' claims stale, the heirs accepted an offer for 30% of the sale proceeds for the colorful circus scene, which went for well over $900,000. To Cornelius, these heirs represented threats to his deceased father, who he saw as the true victim of Hitler. After Germany's confiscation of his beloved legacy of art, Cornelius Gerlitt held one last surprise that was revealed posthumously. His collection, with all its mystery, was left to the Kunstmuseum Bern in Switzerland. And so began the work to resolve the dubious histories behind each piece in the Gerlitt art trove. The provenance of artwork, its ownership history, is unquestionably important to reunite owners with their art, and many of the works held by Gerlitt lack a complete provenance. Such a fractured history makes it difficult to determine a work's value and to authenticate it, and a red-flagged name like Gerlitt in the provenance of a work suggests misappropriation. Despite these difficult truths, the Kunstmuseum Bern accepted the collection, acknowledging its considerable burden and the wealth of questions of the most difficult and sensitive kind that it represented. At least one work from the trove has been sold to offset cost incurred from such questions, including provenance research. That work, Edward Manet's Ships at Sea in Stormy Weather from 1873, is now reunited with its pre-war collection at Tokyo's National Museum of Western Art. While the Kunstmuseum continues its provenance research, an international group of researchers announced its findings about the collection in the essays entitled Gerlet Art Find. Paths of Research. Co-editor of the essays and board member of the German Lost Art Foundation, Gilbert Lupfer, has suggested one takeaway from the Gerlitt Trove. Discovery of looted art must include looking not just to museums, but also to collections held by private individuals, like the Gerlitz. As of now, over 600 works found in Gerlitz homes, some of which were rolled up behind furniture or tossed in veggie bins, are listed in a database created by the German Lost Art Foundation specifically for Gerlitz's collection. 
Among those 600 works are hundreds that are believed to have been looted or have so many provenance gaps from 1933 to 1945 that it's unclear whether they were looted. The works marked as having ownership gaps included over 30 drawings and two sculptures by Auguste Rodin, a Picasso drawing, and seven Gustave Courbet paintings. These and other works in this category could very well be Nazi loot, but insufficient information has been presented to evidence that. Identifying prior ownership history for these works is an essentially mired process due to the unreliable documentation from Gerlitz Records. Gerlitz Estate produced over 27,000 ledgers, address books, catalogs, correspondence, photographs, and the like. However, Hildebrand Gerlitz is known to have conducted his business with falsified receipts, aliases, and undisclosed buyers for an unknown number of transactions, making reliance on his records for provenance purposes a questionable process at best. Some artwork holds clues to its past on its face. Thomas Couture's Portrait of a Seated Woman from circa 1850 to 1855 is one such work. Its prior owner, George Mandel, was identified from an unusual mark on the canvas, a small hole, that was listed when the painting was reported stolen. By ultraviolet examination, that mark was confirmed to have existed and been repaired, enabling confirmation that Portrait of a Seated Woman indeed belonged to Mandel. Unfortunately, Such a pivotal clue is rare. Another rarity is a solution like that reached for an heir's claim over one of the more prominent works from the collection, post-impressionist Paul Cezanne's 1897 Montagne Sainte-Victoire. This painting was with the Cezanne family until 1940, but after that, gaps in its provenance exist. Despite those gaps, the research project had determined that it was likely not looted, and it was held by the Kunstmuseum Bern. By 2018, the Cezanne family's petitions for its return resulted in an agreement whereby the Kunstmuseum retains the painting in its collection, while it also will be regularly shown in Cezanne's hometown of Aix-en-Provence. Other looted works from the Gerlitt collection that have been restituted include Max Lieberman's Two Riders on a Beach and Henri Matisse's Woman with a Fan. It has been said that restitution provides a bit of historical justice for Holocaust victims. Return of looted artwork honors the memory of those who were forced by the Third Reich to part with their culture, one artwork at a time. The collective history of these orphaned works bears witness to an unmet need for justice to those victims and their families. And the resolved history of so many works from the Gerlitt Trove exemplify what a monumental task it is to attain such just solutions. As Germany's culture minister put it, at least a little bit of historical justice can be obtained each time a work wrongly taken in the Nazi era is returned. Until full restitution of Nazi looted art has been attained, though, a palpable tension will persist whenever looted artworks are displayed or hidden. And the Gerlitt family has played into that tension by leaving hundreds of orphaned works and just as many unanswered questions swirling around their billion-dollar collection. This father and son story begs so many questions. How can right and wrong be so very easily blurred, such that Cornelius Gerlitt believed his father to be the true victim? Or is it Cornelius, perhaps, that's the victim? Having experienced the trauma of war as a child under the Nazi mind games that surely reeled through his home, and perhaps his only way of coping was to retreat into his inner world, 
with his art. And then there's the bigger question of right and wrong, that entire groups of people could be considered subhuman, worthy of murder, a racial judgment we see on our streets even today. And so one might ask why, in the shadow of mass murder, is the stealing of art important? Because the hard reality is that small steps of hate pave the way for larger atrocities. Those small steps in World War II Europe included displacement of art, the theft of a people's culture. So how can we now do the right thing? How can hundreds of thousands of still-missing artworks that created that culture be returned? There are many platforms where these stories have been shared and these types of questions have been asked. But it's my belief that the more the stories are told and the questions are asked, the more they are digested and carried forward, the more likely some form of justice can be had, justice for our collective culture. This podcast is meant to act as a storykeeper of our cultural patrimony and to aid in keeping racist atrocities like those of the Nazi era from repeating themselves. Because the best way to avoid repeating our mistakes is knowing our history. This is how to create a culture shift for the good. If you'd like to hear more stories like this, please subscribe and follow Warfare of Art and Law podcast. And it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.